Good morning. I'd like you to take out of your bulletins, if you're interested, you can take out this buff-colored set of notes. If you want, you can follow along with that. We have a lot of territory to cover, so let's start with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. I thank you for your provision. I thank you for the many friends and brothers and sisters that you have given us and for bringing out so many here today. I pray that you would encourage and bless each one and that you would meet them right where they are and that you would encourage each and every one and give them assurance of eternal security. I ask our Father that you would bless those who are up at camp and they pray that you would bring them home safely and that you would encourage them to help them to grow while they're there. And then, Father, I ask that you would bless those who are apart from us as they serve in one or another service of our country, many overseas. I ask that you would keep them safe and that you would bring them home in good health after succeeding in their missions, whatever they may be. And I ask you to provide for and encourage them and their loved ones, our Father, that are here at home. I ask our Father that you'd open your word to us now and that you'd give us some understanding about assurance and eternal security and to give us peace and comfort and encouragement through what you tell us about those things in your word. I thank you, Father, and I ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. I came out of seminary and was called to serve as a pastor of a small Bible church outside of a small rural town in Missouri, in northwest Missouri, uh, that was in Smithville, Missouri, was the town. Now, witnessing was a priority. It was a small church. You've heard of small churches? You know, every, everybody who graduates from Dallas Seminary, I'm sure everybody who comes from any seminary, has big dreams of what God's going to call them to. It took me six months to catch on with the church because I was so young and inexperienced. But finally, a church took a risk on me and uh, called me as their pastor in Missouri. There were 14 people who voted. It was a small church in a small town of 1,800 people halfway between Kansas City and St. Joseph, if you know the area. It was a small church. So witnessing was a priority. We've got to get more people into the church. And I met an elderly lady in a small apartment building in town, and she was hard of hearing. The whole apartment building heard the gospel that day. Her name was Grace. And she was not familiar with my church. I think she went to a Christian church. I'm not sure that's a denomination. Um, My church was a manual Bible church, and she was trying to figure out what that was, what kind of church I represented. As we were getting to know each other, she asked me if I believed in once saved, always saved. And I responded, yes, Grace. Excuse me, I should say it the way I said it then. Yes, Grace! 
I believe in, I hold to eternal security. And her eyes widened. And all of a sudden she realized what I was and she blurted out, why? You're a Baptist. A Baptists often do believe in eternal security, um, but not all Baptists do. We at Rancho Baptist Church do believe in eternal security. There's a section, uh, a paragraph in the section on salvation in our statement of faith that reads this way. We believe personal salvation is received through faith in the person and redemptive work of Jesus Christ alone, apart from any human merit, deed, or ritual. Upon faith, God justifies, regenerates, redeems, forgives, and gives eternal life. And then right at the end of this paragraph, God's faithfulness guarantees the eternal security of all believers. So we hold to eternal security. Ryrie defines it in basic theology, eternal security as, eternal security is the work of God that guarantees the life, the gift of salvation, once received is forever and cannot be lost. The concept of eternal security emphasizes God's activity in guaranteeing the eternal possession of the gift of eternal life. It relates to those the Holy Spirit regenerates and its veracity, its truthfulness, does not rest on feelings or experiences. Baylor Hospital in Dallas, my last year of seminary, I almost died. I, um, my intestines were blocked, closed by scar tissue, and I was rolled into a surgery suite by a nurse. I was placed on a cold table. I was given some medication through the IV in my arm. Don't you love IVs? A mask was placed over my face and nose, and it had a hose coming out of it. I looked like I was in an airplane or something. It seemed that everyone had left, and I was left alone to my thoughts. And I remember thinking, I could die on this table. And I felt panic trying to take a hold of me as I thought about leaving Geneva and our baby. We just had a baby several months before. But I took courage from knowing that if the worst happened, I would be with God in heaven and God would take care of Geneva and our son. I must have passed out. But when I woke up, I was in a room surrounded by medical equipment with a mask over my mouth and nose. And there was a whole hose coming out of it. And I thought to myself, whoa, I'm not supposed to be awake. And I sort of panicked again because... Maybe they were messing up the surgery and the anesthesiology. But I took courage from the thought that no matter what happened, I would be with God in heaven. So I thought if I spoke up, they would know I was awake and they'd fix the problem. So through the mask, I croaked, let's get this show on the road. A nurse with a mask came over and looked me in the eye. And she said, Mr. Craig, you are okay. You are in recovery or intensive care. I can't remember which it was. 
And then I sort of blanked out again. I was okay. But I knew I'd be okay whether I lived or died. This sermon is about why I had that assurance. The big idea is Jesus saves those who have transferred their trust to him for how long? For all eternity. Next slide. For all eternity. Period. In yellow is what you fill in. Salvation. The big idea is, or excuse me, salvation, the problem. Romans 3.23, for all sin and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. And Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. The solution to the problem. Are you all with me? All right, Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God loves us and sent Jesus to die for us. In Ephesians 2.8-9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. Salvation is by grace through faith, not works. And finally, Acts 16.31, And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved, you and your household. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved. Now we have the examples. So that's how you're saved. And I don't know about you, but I can't tell by looking at you whether you're saved or not today. That's between you and God. I would urge you, if you have never done it before, to place your trust in Christ as your Savior. What I'm going to be talking about today is eternal security. That belongs to true believers in Jesus Christ. At the end of the service, at the end of the sermon... I will give you an opportunity to pray with me to receive Christ. But all you got to do is tell him what's in your heart. I want Jesus to be my Savior. Examples of passages. We're going to look at four examples of passages for eternal security. 1 John 5.11 And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know it. You can know you have eternal life. I uh, A couple weeks ago, on a Wednesday night, it was 8 o'clock at night, and I was going to have several of the staff and the elders over to my house for a ministries team meeting. They were coming at 8.15. But the doorbell rang at 8 o'clock. And I thought, well, it's odd for them not to just walk through the door. They know the door is going to be open. And it's odd that they would come that early because they're coming from church after all the activities on Wednesday night at church. 
I figured they'd be a little late, not a little early. Turned out it wasn't the people that I was expecting at all. It was two Mormon missionaries. Oh, we saw your light and thought you might be home. Oh, yeah. It's 8 o'clock, but come on in. I've got a few minutes. So we went down. We went into the family room. The meeting was set up for the living room. So that was good. And I had them sit down. I always have them tell me their names. I'm Elder so-and-so. I'm Elder No, I don't want to know your last names. Tell me your first names. They told me that they were Coleman and Ethan. Coleman was in the last couple days of his two years mission for the Mormon for the Latter-day Saint Church. Just about to get to leave. And it turns out that Ethan was in the first couple of days of his commitment for two years. He was the young one learning from the older one. I said, Well, tell me what you're here for, boys, and I so I let them tell me about what they were all about, and then I would ask them some questions. And I asked them, if you die tonight, would you go to be with God in heaven? Now, you have to understand, when you ask that question of Mormons, you get into a problem. They don't believe that when they die, they'll immediately go into the presence of God in heaven. They believe they go to an interim place, sounds like Roman Catholics dealing with sin. But they need to be perfected still. So the best I could get out of them was, I hope so. I asked them each individually. Then I asked them why God should let them into heaven and, and so on. But that I hope so stuck with me. And I said, you know what? You've got a Bible there. Turn to 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 to 13 and read them to me if you would, please. They always have a Bible, usually King James. And uh, sure enough, they read it to me. And I said, it's not because of me. It's not because of what I do. But I can tell you that I know that I'm going to heaven. I know that I have eternal life. Well, I hope to sow a seed with them. I took them then to my favorite verse for dealing with Mormon missionaries, the one that I always use just before they leave because it certainly leads to them leaving. (laughs) And um, that's not in the sermon, so you'll have to ask me that verse later on. But in in John 10, 27, it says, My sheep hear my voice, I know and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. That's a promise. My Father, who is given to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. This is the second passage in which Jesus and God the Father guarantee our salvation. They guarantee our salvation. Jesus gives his sheep eternal life. He promises no one shall snatch them out of the Father's hand. Indeed, they shall never perish. He promises in 10.29 that not only will he hold us safe in his hand, but that his Father who is greater than all, his Father is greater than all, and no one's able to snatch them out of his hand. It's almost like Jesus says, I'm holding you in my hand, tightly and the father's hand is wrapped around my hand no one can get you out of there and you can't wriggle out of there either so that's a guarantee of salvation the third passage 
Well, I should read a couple other verses uh, about the third the third passage. Ephesians 1.13, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, have also believed and were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. You were sealed in him. Ephesians 4.30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit is the seal of our salvation. You heeded the gospel of salvation. You believed and were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. You were sealed by the Holy Spirit. A seal is a guarantee of security. Uh, in, in Matthew 27, 66, we're told that the, uh, the, the tomb of our Lord were sealed and they went and made the grave secure and along with guard, they set a seal on the stone. It was to keep it secure. The seal is a mark of ownership. Second Corinthians one twenty-two, who also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. The seal is a guarantee that we will get to the day of redemption. So we have Ephesians 4.30 again. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Corn ships that went from Egypt to Rome were sealed by a Roman seal, guaranteeing that the cargo would get from Egypt to Rome. Nobody would steal any of that grain. Promises that we will get to the destination. And then Romans 8.29, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. God has given us the logic of salvation in verses 29 and 30. Everyone goes from one step to the next. He chose us. He foreknew us. He predestined us. All who were foreknown are predestined. All who were predestined are called. All who were called are justified. All who are justified are glorified. Now I got to tell you, glorified is just a little bit of an odd promise because all those other things happen in the past. They're true of you as a believer. You've been glorified in your spirit, but you're not fully glorified. That remains to be done. I like this wheelchair. It gets me from point A to point B. But to tell you the truth, I would much rather be in a glorified body and not need the wheelchair anymore. I don't have a glorified body. Do you have a glorified body yet? Nope. But that's so true of you. That is so great a promise that that it's already cast in the past tense. It's a promise. We have the promise in 1 Corinthians 15, 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. Yet the body is sown, a perishable body is raised, an imperishable body it is sown. In dishonor it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. In, in Romans 6, 8.35, Paul continues, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? 
Who shall separate us from the... But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Could he say it any more completely? I don't think he could. We have been given, we have been given the gift of eternal life, and it is eternally secured. Be assured, Paul was convinced that nothing would be able to separate us from the love of Christ. Now, examples of biblical objections to eternal security and answers to them. There are lots of passages used to dispute eternal security. There are lots of passages used or interpreted as being uh, indications that you can lose your salvation. I'm only going to go through two just to show you that for difficult passages, there are answers. And these are the two most difficult of which I am aware. The problem, Christians seem to go through fiery judgment. The answer, these are believers in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. In order to see that they're believers, we need to look back at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 to 14. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you ought to be teachers by this time, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. So Christians, addressed by the book of Hebrews, they were Christians, but they had fallen back in their commitment to the Lord. So in Hebrews chapter 6, 1, we have a confirmation of that. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, because you're already Christians, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. That's something that every believer would know. Uh, about, of, of, and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on hands, and the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Those are all things brand new believers would know. And this we shall do if God permits. Paul intended to go beyond the foundational basics, which every Christian knows, verses 4 and 5. For in this case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, those who are in danger of judgment are believers, according to verses 4 and 5. Now, some say tasted of the heavenly gift, tasted of the powers to come. Well, they, they taste it, but they don't take it. Well, that's not the case. It says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, But we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, 
namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus did not taste death and then say, oh, I'm not going to do that. No, when he tasted death, he was taking it on completely for all of us. So these are things that are talking about Christians. He is the heavenly gift. John 4.10. Back one, maybe. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is, who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you the living water. He is the gift of God. They have partaken in the gift of God. Back one more. Nope, go ahead one. All right. God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own word. These people have been fully exposed to the, the work of the Spirit. Galatians 3.2, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing by, with faith? They received of the Spirit of God by faith. And Hebrews 6.6, 6. and then having fallen away, have, then have fallen away, in that case, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify themselves, the Son of God, and put him to open shame. Now you need to understand, verses 4 to 6 are one sentence. They're all a package deal. He says, you were, you received, you, let's see what it says in uh, Hebrews chapter uh, 6, 4 and 5. And in the case of those who have been one, have been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, these people who should know better, these people who are believers, these people are in danger of judgment and it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, impossible to renew, is actually from verse 4, but in order to try and make the sentence make sense, for English, many versions, puts that impossible in verse 6. Those who are in danger of judgment have fallen away. Uh, To fall away is to withdraw from Christian profession. What you need to understand about Hebrews as a book, it was written probably between 68 and 69 A.D., before Titus surrounded the city of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 and destroyed the city. Seeing him approach, they would realize that they wanted to keep everybody in the city had to be committed Jews. And if a Jew professed Jesus Christ, they would undergo persecution. We don't want you here. So in order to avoid persecution, what many of these Christian Jews were doing was they were leaving, they were having nothing to do with the Christian fellowship. Instead, they were doing the things that they used to do as Jews before they became Christians. So they were involved in the temple worship and so on. And that would involve them remaining in Jerusalem that was about to be enveloped by the Roman, by the Roman armies. So, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. 
Under what circumstances is that true? Doesn't God want Christians to repent of sin? Get right with him? Yes, he does. When is it that Christians are not allowed to repent? We're told that Jesus, that in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 6, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence in the boast of our hope firm until the end. Let's hold on to our confidence. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Hang in there. So we are told that these are Christians. Um, and they were agreeing with Jesus' enemies that the, they were instead walking away from the Christian commitment. They were agreeing with Jesus' enemies that the Lord was worthy of crucifixion and thus putting him to open shame. What is burned? Works which are unworthy. Works which are unworthy. He gives an illustration in verses 7 and 8 to explain about verse 6. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls upon it, and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. This is an illustration to explain the statement of, of judgment in 6.6. God blesses ground which grows useful vegetation. Christians who are useful to the Lord, who produce good fruit, who walk in a manner which pleases the Lord. That's verse 7, verse 8. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Ground which yields thorns and thistles is worthless, close to being cursed. It ends up being burned to cleanse it of all the bad, the bad produce, the bad uh, growth. What was burned up? The bad fruit. The ground is scorched, but the ground is not destroyed. In this illustration, the believer is what part? The believer is not the growth. The believer is the ground that produces growth. It, believers are blessed if they produce good works, and they are judged, they are scorched, they lose the works, but still the ground is not burned up. The ground is there. Reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 to 15. Now if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, this is familiar, I hope, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. That's like verse 7. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss. That's like verse 8. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. So this is not telling us that we can lose our salvation. We will suffer loss, but will be scorched. And we'll be scorched, but we'll be saved. This is an example, I think, of the sin unto death in 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him 
give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make a request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. But in saying there is a sin not leading to death, he says there is also a sin leading to death. What is a sin leading to death? I don't know. No one can know. Here he says it's continuing to avoid Christian fellowship in Jerusalem in AD 68 and 69. We're not there. It's not 68 or 69. Is there a sin unto death today? And I believe there is. We're given a couple of examples in the scriptures. First, we have Ananias and Sapphira, who in Acts chapter 5, verses 111, died for lying about their offering through the uh, light of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. They died because of the offering. Would that make the offering a little more exciting? Somebody got to lie about their offering and they're going to die right here, right now? What about people who got sick and some died because they took part in communion in an unworthy manner, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 30 to 34? How would that affect communion today? Confess your sins and prepare to partake of communion. Then people start taking part in communion and two or three people die right here in the room. It was happening in Corinth. Why doesn't it happen now? Maybe it does. Well, we'd notice, but the reality is that God seems to apply this standard about the sin unto death with loads of grace. And I thank God for that. Because I don't know about you, I deserve to be judged. Do you deserve do well do, do you sin? We all sin. That's what John says in first John chapter one. We need to have short accounts of sin in our lives. We need to claim his promise of forgiveness and cleansing when we confess our sins, according to 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is this a verse that you know? I hope this is a verse that you have memorized because it's a verse... You can use every single day seeking out God's cleansing for sin. I would say ask God for daily grace, Hebrews 4.16. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. This is the kind of thing you need to do so that you will avoid committing a sin unto death. Cleanse your mind with the word, reading the word, studying the word, Memorizing the word, according to Ephesians 5.26. Ask God to bear the fruit of the Spirit in your life, according to Galatians 5.22-23. Okay, we have Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26-31. to 31. The problem. This is the second passage. Christians who continue in sin will undergo judgment by fire. I don't know what it is, but every time you see fire, many times people see fire... Fiery judgment in the Bible of Christians, and they immediately assume, oh, Christians can go to hell. No, not true. 
the answer. Hebrews 10.26 For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Why is that? Why is that true? Sinning willfully is abandoning Christian commitments and returning to temple worship and works to avoid persecution. Hebrews 10.23, this is the context. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. You see, the Hebrew Christians were wavering because they wanted to avoid persecution. For he who promises faithful, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together. They were avoiding the church. They were avoiding Christian fellowship. So as is, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. They were avoiding fellowship with the church. They were ministering. It's important that you minister to one another, but they could see the judgment was coming. From the north, we're told that Titus was leading four legions. He was destroying communities along the way, and eventually he would come and besiege Jerusalem, and eventually that's how the temple was destroyed. They saw all that happening. Instead, the writer of the Hebrew reminds them, Hebrews reminds them of how they had been committed in spite of persecution. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by being sharers with those who were, who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. They had allowed themselves to be persecuted before. They had identified with other Christians that were being persecuted. But this is cast in the past tense. The church in Jerusalem experienced significant persecution during this patriotic struggle with Rome. And some Christians thought they would be able to avoid persecution if they avoided their Christian fellowship. Then we're told the Lord will judge his people in verses 27 to 31. But a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of, the of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by, by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Know that God is serious about our commitment to him. He wants us to follow him. And these people, these people are in danger of that kind of judgment. So, he tells them that they need to be, they need to change. They need to leave Jerusalem before Titus starts his siege. 
Don't stick around with the temple because you think you need the temple. No, we have a new new life with the Lord. So leave. Hebrews 10.27, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. Oh, we already read all that. Okay. His disobedient people leave Jerusalem. We did that too. Okay. He says, uh, therefore Jesus also, in Hebrews 13.12, therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Hence, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach, leave Jerusalem. For here we do not have a lasting city, Jerusalem, but we are seeking the city, heavenly Jerusalem, which is to come. So we are, we must not stay in Jerusalem. It's time to leave. Now, false implications of eternal security. If we are eternally secure, some will say, the the Mormons said this to me, then we are free to sin. My answer is, no! We read in Romans chapter chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? No! May it never be. How should we who die to sin, sin still live in it? Instead, we need to live the life that God prepared for each of us. Ephesians 2, 2.10 For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We need to follow after him. What if you lose faith? That's the second question that people will ask. What if you lose faith? The answer is, the Lord is faithful. And we read in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Numbers 23.19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? He promised eternal life. He promised eternal security. He'll do it. Titus 1, 2. In the hope, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Today, I hope you have an assurance of eternal security. I don't know whether you're a believer or not, but God knows. He can give you eternal life if you've not yet trusted in him. And if you're not sure about it, then I would say, put down a marker today. Write it in your Bible. Write down the date. We're going to pray in just a moment. And if you would like to be sure of your salvation, you can pray with me. If you know you have not trusted in Christ, now is your time. This is your chance. Let's pray. God, I want to be sure of eternal life. Tell them in your heart. I have sinned. I deserve to go to hell and I cannot save myself. But you love me and you sent your son Jesus to die in my place to pay for my sins. Jesus, 
Right now, I transfer my trust to you. I transfer my trust to what you did for me on the cross to save me. Please be my Savior. Save me for eternity right now. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.